Welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafta, and today I'll be chatting with Danielle Keevan, VP of Finance at Paddle. Paddle offers SaaS companies a completely different approach to their payments infrastructure. Instead of assembling and maintaining a complex stack of payments-related apps and services, they're a merchant of record for their customers. Hi, Danielle. How are you? Hi, Stacey. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Anytime. I know that you just came back from vacation. How was it? I did. It was great, actually. It's always good to get out, um, especially be out on the road and take a nice road trip. Um, I find that very relaxing. Awesome. Where did you go? We went to France. So we drove down from the Netherlands through Belgium to France, and we made several stops along the way uh, to discover some of the cities um, and enjoy bread and wine, I would say. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. Well, welcome back. I'm eager to learn just more about your career journey and then essentially what led you to become the VP of finance. Yeah, sure. Um, I Early on, I started my career in Aruba where um, I was raised and there the hospitality industry is quite prominent. Mm. Um, so I stepped into the finance space more as an entry job to kind of see how things would go. Gotcha. Um, as soon enough, I, I, I realized I had a knack for it. Um, and so did uh, the leadership and I kept getting shipped out and, and sent off to different locations of hotels where either there had been audit complications or there were challenges being compliant. And I think little did I know um, that the chaotic environment of the Caribbean kind of groomed me for finance in a tech space. (laughs) I found that to be very helpful um, later down the line. And uh, once I finally made over the transition, I started at Booking.com. Um, I heard a myth that people in Europe only work eight hours. <laughs> so I figured it would be a nice switch to from the Americas um, market to the European market. Yeah. Um, Was it true? It is not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but I, I do find that it goes up and down. So it's not, it's not constant. And I do find the tech space way more energizing. I think the problems we're trying to solve and the automation that we're trying to create or implement are so much more exciting just than basic finance and accounting in, in yeah. other spaces. Um, so yeah, so, so I think stepping into booking was a great challenge where I got to really focus on scale. Um, just everything you do in finance is so massive um, that it just just really sparked a lot of creativity in how we would scale the volumes of transactions or the business and how we would support the teams to really optimize the use of, I would say, intellect um, so that people can do what actually is invigorating versus like clicking that button kind of thing. Um, and then from from there, I wondered, you know, booking is quite sizable. How much more of a difference I could make if I got in early, mm. get the finance foundations right to scale in the future. So that's kind of what prompted my move to MessageBird.com, also an Amsterdam-based um, tech, also also tech space, but um, more in telecom. So that was a great learning curve for me to enter into that space. And then it made me wonder how much more I could do if I was in fintech, which is actually <laughs> not just technology, but also yeah. kind of my field of expertise, which kind of prompted me to really get excited when I saw Paddle come by and just the product that that we offer is fantastic. And for me, the buy-in was almost immediate. Nice. So 
when we first met, there were different regions we were talking about. And every time I mentioned a new country or a new part of the world, you were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've helped a business expand to that region too. You have a lot of experience opening up new entities and expanding businesses into new regions. There is a ton to learn from like the tax landscape to understanding your product market fit. How do you decide what market to enter next? And how do you prepare to launch specifically a B2B product? Yeah. So here at Paddle, our focus is to just enable the whole of, to really enable software sellers to really access the whole market globally. So it's not that we select specific markets. Um, what we do do is we make sure that we're tax compliant. So there are different regulations in saying like, hey, some countries may have a transaction count as a threshold that if you exceed X amount of transactions, you're, you should be filing taxes. Others have a monetary value within a certain time frame. Um, and so we track these globally. So wherever we are at threshold or getting close to them, we make sure we register and ensure compliance. Um, and that model has worked very well for us to just enable software developers to sell to the world practically immediately as soon as they step into Paddle. And then the other thing that we do is we do focus on where the bulk of our customer um, are located at and to see how we can enable better payment solutions and options that are better local market fit to ensure that we have high acceptance rate for our software sellers, customers to enjoy an easier and frictionless checkout process. Got you. In the past, when you were thinking about expanding into a new region, what did the first month look like when it came to research? So typically what the normal approach is, is that internally you set up a team, almost like a committee um, mm -hmm. or a normal company um, that is looking to expand or looking to determine or assess where they want to open an entity. There's a few considerations or a few reasons that might prompt that. One of them is definitely employees. So talent. So maybe you want to set up an employment entity. Others might be business related. Mm. So potentially maybe you've just trying to close a contract with a local business and they want a local entity to do that business with. Some of these deals could be lucrative enough for your business to consider opening an entity to accommodate this request. Another one is also to enable um, better local payment options, which sometimes will require you to have an entity in a different country. Um, so those are just some of the considerations. I definitely think um, customer demand uh, is one of the biggest triggers as yeah, well as yeah. in general. Um, the first month of research will be a committee typically of your legal team, someone in finance, someone in sales or operations, and someone in your people team or your HR team. And those will all investigate different angles. Angles, like what are the hiring requirements or what are the contract the contractual obligations? What are the corp what does the corporate legislation look like? Um, what are we liable to like pay taxes over? What does your um, intercompany transactions look like? Because when you set up an entity as well, from the finance side, there's like some back of the house work that should take place. Um, to fund the entity or to move or pay, make payments for that entity or through that entity and so on. You probably have to set up a local bank account to pay taxes as well and to make sure your transfer pricing agreements are also in place. So I think the initial work is a lot of um, legal jargon, a lot of finance mm -hmm. terms, and then also investigating what your what and when you should be um, filing your corporate taxes. Look Got you. 
Very interesting question. I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot. So if you don't have an answer, it's completely okay. Has there been a time where the business was like very close to being certain that they were either expanding their product into a new market or I don't know whether it's opening up a new entity and there was something that came up in the research that just halted it and that was kind of blindsided? Um, In the previous companies I've worked at, I'm going to say yes. Um, and some of these are also the cost element at sometimes, but also the complexity of the local landscape. Um, whereas if you look at some of the Western countries, they might be very organized and the governments are very structured and clear in what is being asked. But you'll also encounter some more challenges in other non, not as developed areas of the world where it's very lucrative to set up an entity. However, sometimes local help isn't always easy to come by. Mm. And so your advice or recommendation that you get like from your local local legal team or your finance and tax accountants uh, might be very challenging to follow that paired with language barriers. Um, I think if the hurdles imposed are high enough and if the cost is high enough, that might actually cause or trigger a company to decide against opening an entity yeah. locally. Yeah, helpful. Thank you. A massive intrinsic motivation of yours is people development. Not all people are suited for startup and scale-up phases. What challenges do you face and how do you prepare your talent for the scale-up transition? I think for me, it's important to prepare talent to assume the new role or responsibility before that opportunity actually comes. Um, What this may look like is, for example, having an employee that maybe would not be exposed to like a leadership conversation or leadership meetings to have them, you know, take them along with you, um, expose them to that level of either information or even take them along into those meetings if possible. Another way um, that I really like Um, developing talent is that when there are questions or challenges, instead of giving the answer, asking them to be like, well, if I wasn't here, what would you do? And have them kind of walk through the process of what does a good decision look like? What are some of the risks that I might be overlooking or things that I hadn't considered um, in my decision-making process? And I think as you as you support people to make decisions on their own, you also enable their confidence to keep growing and really become um, to see that ownership really start shaping up and becoming more confident in operating independently, which is one of the things that you definitely want in a leader. On the previous episode on the podcast, the guest was just talking about the importance of getting your employees buy in, whether that's through an acquisition, when you're scaling Let's talk about scaling and the difference in processes and getting your team excited for that change because I think that you'll have a split team where one side is really excited for this change and the other, whether that's through legacy or tradition, is really struggling. Right. That is that is not um, uncommon. Um, I think we as people are all different and I do think that different angles to manage these changes that we encounter day to day are definitely important. Um, For me, when when we are dealing with a scaling situation or determining when you should hire or when you should automate, I think those are conversations that we have openly. I think one of the things that I share with my team as well is like, if you automate 100% of your job, you will never be out of a job. 
Um, and so I, I think that we forget how attractive it is for companies to be like, yeah, I, I had, I did this and this, and then I automated that task. I'm like, mm. you know, so I, I think that presents the security has to be there. So not that, hey, if I automate my job, then what am I going to be doing next? We're like, well, no, but there's other things we should be doing. And like I said, I think clicking a button is not the best use of human intellect. So for me also, I'm like, if if it's just clicking a button and if it's like a repetitive task, really get creative on automation. I was like, there's so many tools out there that can be optimized to automate that role. And I think getting people excited about knowing if I automate my role 100%, I'll get something else to do and I'll be exposed to more challenging problems to solve. That typically does tend to get people excited. On the flip side to your point though, there are people that rather go, this is what I'm doing. I'm actually happy doing this one role. I want to grow and develop, but not necessarily in my career. But that doesn't exclude them from the development process of personal growth. And I think so whatever the ambition of the person is, whether it to be to have like a normal role and to be stable and to be a part of a great team and and move forward, that adds so much value to the team as well. And then to help them say, well, what is one thing that you would like to be better at or you would like to grow in and then partner with your team to personal on personal development in that area. So I think growth and development can take different shapes. It can yeah. be through ambition to really build out your career and, 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 and keep going. But it can also just be like, hey, I just want to be better at certain things in either skill set or personal. And, and so I think there's so much opportunity, whichever is the motivation. I think it's important just to listen and understand what they want to do and help partner with them. So. I've been having multiple conversation with peers recently, people around the same age group as me. And we were talking about the pressure of having to be ambitious or answering the question, yes, I'm actually just really happy in my current position. And no, I don't want to either get a promotion or manage a team has a negative connotation. What are your thoughts to that? Um, I agree in a sense that I've seen it happen around me that if you don't show your ambition, you might be passed over more frequently. Mm. Um, and I, and I think that's where you need, as a leader, you should partner with your team to respect if a person, for example, is not interested in one role to grow specifically, but don't write them off into growing into a different area, if that makes sense. Um, I think also that we're entering more and more into, I'm going to say an era <laughs> in a workforce where work-life balance has become so important. And it's balancing how we can ensure that our teams are motivated to work and re-engage together yeah. all when they're here. Um, but to also say, well, there are boundaries and there's more to life than work. <laughs> and to actually be able to respect that and not take that as a sign that people are not engaged or people are not committed. It's just like they're also committed to other things outside of work. And I yeah. think that's an important change that I've seen. Um, I've, I've, I've been around to quite a while. <laughs> like I said, I've, I've really moved to Europe um, in search of that work-life balance. Um, and it is a lot better, I think, on, on this side of the world than I have seen it in the past. When, when we just started out my career, I, I had to work 16-hour days. Wow. And that was wow. normal. And that was just basic. <laughs> that was the bare minimum. Correct. That was the basic entry. And, and I think if you left on time, the joke around the office would be, oh, working part-time today. And, <laughs> and I don't think that that's a very healthy culture. Um, but I think if you look at that 
mindset to where we are today, we're speaking about mental health and we're speaking about work-life balance, um, it's still being able to grow your career. I, I think that's, that's beautiful. And I think we're entering a much more healthy um, workforce. Yeah. Yeah. I've got advice for managers and then also employees, depending on what they're interested in. Every single January throughout my career from day one, I've had a conversation with my manager on like what I want to achieve that year. And I think that's one important so that you can let your manager know what that is and they can support you and help you achieve those goals. But for managers themselves, I'd really, really encourage you to have these conversations with your team members so that you, one, can make sure that the expectations are clear, but you also understand whether they want to move within within to a different department or if they are looking for that promotion that you can give them the right tools to, one, achieve that, but then also showcase their skill set to prove that they're right for that position. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, And I think one important element, you you mentioned it, I think probably without noticing, um, whether your manager does this or not, that shouldn't exempt you from having a plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think there's a lot of, um, there's been different phases in the workforce. And one of them was, hey, I look to my manager to help me develop. You can, but if you are out of luck and you don't have a manager that believes in development engagement, you're going to be waiting a long time. Yeah. And so I think the one thing that's really important is that you do find what you want to develop and tying it into what you said earlier, you may or may not be ambitious to grow, but everybody does want to grow a skill, a talent or whatever it is. Do not wait for someone to come to you with a plan yeah. Make sure you have your own plan. Do discuss it with your leadership. So they'll have either they can weigh in or they can support it. Um, but do not, I would always say don't depend on others for your own growth and development. It's nice if you have a great manager that will help you. Um, but there are plenty of people out there that know that's not always the case. So what do you do in that event that maybe that your manager isn't going to be your go-to person? Um, For me, through my career, I've had great bosses. I've had terrible bosses. (laughs) (laughs) Um, However, I've always owned my own growth and development. And so I've always been respectful. I think very early on, I remember one of my managers, she was a really good manager. And she said, be the employee today that you wish to have tomorrow. And so that has been such a deeply ingrained lesson for me that to this day, I am very mindful how I speak of my managers, how I treat my managers, how I how I do or do not interact with them with or without their presence, what I say or don't say, because I do believe in the principle of you reap what you sow. So exactly. Being a good employee goes a long way. But in this sense as well, whether they are engaged with my development or not. I will find a way to grow myself and to to really grow in the environment I'm in. And I have my own goals that I want to achieve. And I make sure that I partner with myself. (laughs) If I I get help, that's great. But I'm not going to be dependent on others or blame others in this instance. Well, because my life and my development is within my ownership and my influence. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. 
Each week, I create a new podcast which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. I 100% agree. I love that. Um, I just want to, you mentioned earlier about automation and another element to take into consideration when scaling is when to invest in automation and then when to hire. How have you made that decisions in the past? I think it's a balance of understanding. I think most scale-ups and startups, for example, um, do, do really manage their cash flow and their cash spend. And it's to see, look at your history, how quickly you've expanded or doubled. Um, for example, if you look at accounts payable, which is technically, usually in the beginning, it's quite low volume. It kind of just flows and it grows. If you kind of start to see a 10x or even 50x or 100x or whatever it may be in your volumes, um, you can say, well, this one person can process, I don't know, 5,000 invoices. Two people can process 10,000 invoices. If I look at my growth trajectory, it will take me three years before this volume actually doubles. And so you might opt then to bring somebody in that for the next two years will cover your growth, which it could be more cost effective than bringing in automation for your AP scanning tooling. Um, mm -hmm. So it's it's a balance between the two. But you could also say, I'm bringing in this person now that will help me scale for the next two years, but it also creates bandwidth to help install automation. So there's there's gotcha. several ways you can approach it. Um, so for me, I usually look at what how how fast are we growing? Like if the growth that we are seeing in volumes of transactional volumes, et cetera, is sustainable by the same team for the next five years, I may or may not opt to automate yet. It might make more sense to bring in a person, um, but definitely wherever automation is cost effective, I definitely encourage to start as early as you can. Okay. Okay. Something that I look into is the end product with automation versus hiring. So whether that's building campaigns for our marketing team is I always find that the answer is I need both. So I do need or to automate this process, but I need somebody to look over it or edit the automation in a certain way. Um, and I think that it's not always one or the other, but maybe it, it involves automating that would take three less hires and then having someone specific just to manage that. Correct. That may also be the case. And that's where it's important to kind of try to forecast what that growth looks like. Because you can't say, well, I'll hire somebody to manage this automation today, but that will save me, just like you said, five or 10 people down the line. Yeah. Um, and and that, will, that is still a worthy investment and to make sure that you have both in some instances. In other instances, you can use the teams you have. And when you automate, change their job scope or their job scale to go with what you're automating and to help maintain and build this out further. Um, so there's several combinations. And I think um, taking an open-minded approach when you walk into it, assuming that you've seen what you've seen before, you know what you know before, but still, hey, there might be some spots that I'm not sure about and like there's new technology popping up every day. Um, I always go, hey, show me, you know, and then when you walk through a process, you're like, okay, this does or does not make sense. And then you decide accordingly and reiterate. 
Okay, so the next topic and the final topic I want to discuss is all about revenue forecasting. We spoke about this at length and I left this for the end because I really want to dive deep into this topic. We were chatting about the difficulties of having an accurate revenue forecast and what I found and the discussions we have is you get two sides of the business. You get one side that maybe is more like the commercially minded people, very optimistic about like what deals are going to come on, what the forecast looks like. But how do we find that middle ground of creating a really accurate revenue forecast that's not really like retail where it's based on like Christmas time, you're going to be having a big spend or if you're a water park in the summer, you're going to have a bigger spend. Um, but more B2B products and services that are really tough to forecast based on season. Yeah, I, I think a good place to start is the 80-20 rule. Typically, 20% of your customers drive 80% of your revenue. Um, so if you can build a forecast that kind of predicts their behavior um, based on the past, based on the market situation um, of what that looks like, that really brings you a little bit closer to accuracy as you go down the line. And I think it's also with the commercial teams to actually sit and go through their forecast. One way to go through this as well is to um, take the number they've given you and historically go back and say, well, you've said this, and by this is how much we were off. Um, and let history kind of be a little bit of a lesson as to how much percentage-wise you should adjust to get to like a true um, and accurate revenue forecast. I think just revenue forecasting in scale-ups and startups is a challenge um, in general because there are very few companies, except if you are building out a reporting um, tech stack, um, mm -hmm. that really keep in mind what this will look like and how the quality of data will impact what you're working on. Um, so I think this is usually and typically one of the first challenges as a finance leader when you walk into a scale-up or startup that has had either no finance team or a thinner finance team, so to speak, um, is to really identify where the gaps are in your data because accuracy of data will help you predict and make accurate forecasts in the future as well. Yeah. Advice I recently got given spoke about weighting your different opportunities or deals in the pipeline. So the forecast was a struggle where we were looking at either, okay, we're certain this is going to come on. And then we just didn't put on anything else that we weren't certain about, but that isn't then a good indication of what the revenue is going to look like. It's just, what are we certain about. It's not really then a forecast. So what we looked at doing is, okay, what is the percentage? Are you 50% sure? Are you 80% sure? And then we have this list of criteria are like, are you speaking to the decision maker? Have you already had conversations with the finance team? And that's helped a ton. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I think one of the things um, that I love uh, that we've, we've been doing a lot this year is almost have three different budgets which is like mm. base case if you do nothing, worst case if there's like... Everything. Correct. Oh, wow. And then the best case, or actually to me, it's more the realistic case. Realistic case, <laughs> yeah. Then you have your base. Like if I do nothing, this is my revenue. Um, what are the levers that I can pull to drive this up? And then from your base case, you can actually say, well, I'll pull this lever or this investment. And then you know exactly what you're investing in and what your return expected, expected return is on revenue. So you can identify where you're going to invest in to really, really ramp up. 
Um, and then you can also measure your success to be like, well, if we did nothing, this is what we're going to be. Um, we've chosen to do this ABC and we've chosen to make mm-hmm. these changes and these strategic decisions. And that's yielded us X amount of revenue. So we found that operating in that space is is quite solid because if all things remain equal and if we did nothing and if we just stopped working, this is the revenue we would get for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If we go heads down and really be aggressive and strategic and these are the investments we want to make or these are the accounts that we want to go after, then this is what we expected to materialize into. And so we found that that's very helpful because then you can navigate from your base case like a compass to see what worked better or worse than you expected. I love that. Thank you. That's super helpful. And thank you again for being on the podcast. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Stacey. Always my pleasure. Where's the best place for listeners to reach you? I'm definitely on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, Connecting the Global Fintech Community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new, exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.